Well, if you turn attention to the scriptures this morning, to 1 Peter chapter 1, let's continue in our study of this book. Uh, I was thinking this morning what a privilege it is that we can even say, well, let's turn attention to this, that we're so blessed by God to have access to what he said <laughs> and free access to it. And, uh, and God didn't have to do that. And there's lots of places where people don't have so much access to God's Word. I'm just thankful we can say, oh, well, let's open our Bibles and let's, let's see what God had to say. And let's remind ourselves of what God had to say. At any rate, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to pick up the reading today in verse 10 of chapter 1. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this day and to be in your word. Lord, we know that even as you speak and have it written down for us, that we need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand the things that you've said, at least understand deep enough that it plants within us. And Lord, would you carry out that work in our time together? Teach us. Let your Holy Spirit take your word and plant it deep within us, and then empower us in our obedience to it. Well, thank you for that. Give us alertness of mind, I pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The preceding section to what we're looking at today, verses 6 to 9 particularly, had been talking to us about the reality of trials and suffering as a believer, Uh, that this is a fact that the redeemed are not exempt from trials in this life. And it doesn't really matter where you turn in the scriptures. This truth is reaffirmed by God. He never tries to hide that fact. God never tried to get people to follow him because he promised them some sort of buffer around them or that life would all go good for them. No. No, he, he was always very straightforward. You know, following the, Christ, following the Lord can mean death in our lives. Uh, it can mean suffering, it can mean trials. As Second uh, Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not that they run the risk, they will be. I mean, there's sufferings and trials in the midst of a fallen world. God never, and the Lord Jesus during his ministry, never hid that fact from people. Even though some misguided believers in our contemporary culture, uh, in the midst of their churches, sort of hide that. Or they try to do a sell job on what following Jesus might do for you. And they imply by that that, well, you follow Jesus if you're sick, you'll be healthy. If you're poor, you'll be prosperous, and so on and so forth. Uh, That never is true to the Scriptures. Scriptures don't don't make that plain. Uh, Scriptures are pretty straightforward. One of the things we also discovered about that truth is that, and it's really kind of an amazing fact, that the trials can be used by God to actually help us to know the truth about our salvation in a way we couldn't know otherwise. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 
5 commands us to test ourselves to know if Christ is really in us. And we talked earlier in our study of 1 John about the fact that some of the tests in 1 John were to, in fact, reveal to us whether Christ is in us, whether we truly know him. The irony that we saw in verses 6 to 9 is that we can find a depth of assurance about our salvation, a depth of assurance that we know Christ that comes from affliction itself, a depth of assurance that we would not encounter if we were not afflicted. Sort of ironic, sort of strange, but it's true. Uh, when we're in the midst of difficult times, he said that there were four proofs that come to us that our faith is genuine. Number one, we saw yesterday, or last week, that we continue to love the Lord Jesus despite the trials. <laughs> it isn't that, well, my love's gone now because I'm having some tough times. We discover, no, no, I'm having tough times, yes, but I, I find I still love the Lord, you know, in the midst of this. An important test. The second of the proofs was I continue to believe in Jesus Christ despite the trial. In other words, the people that say, well, I'm following Jesus because I believe he's going to put a buffer around my life, if, if it's a false understanding, but if things get turned sour in their life, then they decide, well, what's the sense of following Jesus? He didn't live up to his side of the bargain, and they don't do it. But for the one who's truly come to know Christ, they might not understand why the trials are happening, and certainly they may not be happy about the trial itself, but they don't reassess whether I continue to believe in the Lord Jesus or not. They continue to believe, even in their puzzlement about life. The third thing that we saw is a proof was that we discover, even in the hard times, what he describes here using this terminology, inexpressible and glorious joy. A joy deep inside we don't really have words in our language to express but it's still real. That far from the difficult times erasing any deep, sustaining joy, despite those times, God fosters that in us. Well, that doesn't mean we're experiencing it 24 hours a day, but it just means in the face of it all, it's a deep, confirming reality. No one can generate that. The Holy Spirit produces that and produces it in a regenerate heart. Finally, he said that in the midst of a trial, God uses the trial to remind us what the right goal of our faith is all about. As he put it, the right goal of our faith is the salvation of our soul. We're not following Jesus Christ to get something less than that. We're following Jesus Christ to get that, which means no matter what's happening around us, we got that. The trials can't affect that issue. It's not prosperity or health or freedom from trials or feel-good things that are the reason we turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus because we're lost. We have sin that has no way to find forgiveness apart from what he's done. We sang songs about that today. We turn to him. And trials sort it all out. I say, why am I really following Jesus? Who else has the words of life is the way Peter put it, you remember? Oh, and Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? In John 6, as other people were leaving, as it became clear, well, following Jesus isn't going to produce what we thought it was. And he says, well, where else do we go? Who else has the words of life? And words of life have to do with salvation of the soul. That's what it's about. Well, today, uh, we move from that discussion, and we move on. And the fact is, generally speaking, for most of us as believers, although we will encounter times of trial and suffering, we also encounter times where life sort of returns to normal. 
all right, where we're not in the midst of the trial and raging sea, so to speak. And one of the things that happens when we return to normalcy, you know, when, when the waves drop down, is that we can begin to lose our awe of our salvation. We're sort of awed in the face of the hard time because it draws us in a way closer to the Lord and a deeper appreciation than we had otherwise. That's why, Jesus, that's why the scripture says it's good that I was afflicted. You know? uh, it sorts it all out for us. But we get back to normalcy, and haven't you discovered that? You know, life starts to smooth sail once again, and you just kind of lose that cutting edge, oh, the wonder of our salvation. It was so real to me during the trial. So verses 10 to 12 address that. There's always this wonderful logic in the scriptures. They're not randomly collected verses. They're, they're, there's, there's a letter to us. God is laying out teaching for us. And the next natural thing he would address is say, well, once the trials are over and you're back, you know, this could happen to you. You could then sort of become complacent about your faith again. I know in the midst of the trial you say, well, I'd never become complacent about this again. But give yourself a couple days of smooth sailing, and suddenly you become complacent about it. I mean, we all do. And he says, listen, when this starts to happen, take a moment and remind yourself of something. Perhaps remind yourself of the trials and what was true during that. That's certainly reasonable. But here he says in specific, he says, I want you to remind yourself of what the Bible reveals to us about the awe that the Old Testament prophets had about this very salvation. And remind yourself, in a sense, even, of what awe the angels have about this salvation that you've allowed yourself to start to feel a bit complacent about. Uh, No longer sort of central to your considerations. So let's look at that together. He says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. Then it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Now, the word prophets here is referring to the Old Testament prophets, but not in the broadest sense. I mean, there were a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, but only certain of the prophets in the Old Testament were the recipients of revelation. They were the ones who gave us the scriptures under direction of the Holy Spirit. That's the ones he's referring to. And in that sense, it is not only people necessarily called prophets, but it includes Moses and David and on up through to Malachi. Those, Those are the people he's talking about here. He's directing our attention to those individuals who were the privileged recipients of the Holy Spirit's ministry of revelation. And as God moved upon them, then they wrote down... What we have is the scriptures. Same idea you encounter in Hebrews chapter 1, where in verse 1 it says, Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to the forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through also he created the world. Uh, That's the prophets we're talking about. The ones through whom God spoke and turned into this the scriptures. We don't need any more of those, by the way, because in these last days he's spoken to us through his son and those whom the son has moved through. Uh, just as most of the Old Testament prophets were not ones who received revelation, their role was different, and I don't have time today to talk to you about that, but not all of them had that revelatory role. 
in the same way, we, whatever prophets may be doing in our current era, we're not getting any more revelation from them. God's word is completed. Well, moving on. As they received revelation from God, as they were writing these prophetic passages down, one of the things that happened is they discovered the grace that was to come, is the phrase used here. You know, they're writing down the stuff in the Old Testament, God speaking to them, and God was saying, in the prophecies, is they're thinking about what they're saying, I mean, they're not mindless about it, they're thinking about what they write down, uh, they discovered that there was a grace to come. Not then, but coming. And they were motivated to find out more about that grace. They read the Word of God carefully. They thought about what God's Spirit was working through them to write. And they said, we want to know more about this grace stuff. We want to know more about that. They already knew from what God had said in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have to suffer for our sin. First, Ephesians 50, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians, Isaiah 53 being the classic suffering servant passage, but not the only one. They knew that. They also knew that the, that the sufferings of the Messiah would then lead to glories, which was a broad category. It would lead to a lot of things, lasting forgiveness, acceptance with God, a new heart, a future and a hope. And, and as they knew, because the prophetic picture in the Old Testament was telling us about what the gospel would bring. So they knew those things. This is what they knew. But that wasn't enough. There were other things that they wanted to know. (laughs) And what was that? They still wanted to know more about who and when. In other words, who would this Messiah turn out to be anyway? This one who is going to accomplish these things. This one who would be suffering for us. Who is this going to be? And so they'd say, you know, it occurred to us, you told us about what was coming, but you didn't say who this was going to be with all the detail we would like to see. Uh, Secondly, you didn't tell us exactly when. In other words, when when was he going to come and do these things? Uh, When was he going to come to suffer for our sin? And, certainly, in keeping with that, when would this Messiah come and bring about the promised Messianic kingdom? I mean, Who and when? Who and when? Anyone who's studying the Word of God with persistence would encounter the same questions as they read the Old Testament. They'd be rejoicing in the promises, but they would be perplexed. If we didn't have the new now, they would be perplexed about some of the same things. You know, who exactly will this Messiah be? Oh, they would know it came in the line of David, of course, but who would this be? And when? When would he come? And what about the kingdom? Questions, by the way, the disciples were still posing to Jesus even after the resurrection at the beginning of the book of Acts. They were motivated to find the answers. Now, why were they so motivated to do that? Hey, the issue isn't that they were just intellectually curious people, although I think they probably had intellectual curiosity, but that's not what motivated them. They were motivated ultimately because they recognized what everyone has to recognize in their heart, and that is their need for the very grace that they read about and heard about that was to come. They knew all mankind, including themselves, were doomed under the Old Covenant. 
Remember Isaiah coming into the presence of the Lord? His first response is, woe is me. I am unclean. Man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people unclean lips. They knew they needed what was to come. They also knew and appreciated God had a temporary thing in place to temporarily cover sin and to deal with things, but they knew they needed this Messiah and his suffering and the glories that would come out of it. And so that was the great motivation. We want to know more about this saving stuff. We want to know more about this grace. And if you want to know how intently that was driving them, look at the words that are used. They searched and inquired carefully. That's how they sought it. This word, they searched, exedio in the Greek, which means, it's the only place, by the way, in the Bible this word is used, uh, the Greek word. It means to seek after something with deep zeal and motivation. In other words, if you're looking for somebody who's driven, that's the description of the person. And he says, these Old Testament prophets... They were driven, zealously driven. They wanted to find this answer. Intellectual curiosity can do, some, can do a certain amount in us to make us want to study something and find some answers. But not, it'll never produce this Greek idea of searching, zealously motivated, driven to find it. They were driven to find an answer. I thought of Luke chapter 15 uh, some of the parables related to the kingdom. Remember the parable of the woman's search for the lost coin, verses 8 to 10 in Luke 15. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, search diligently until she finds it? And when she founds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, said, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin I'd lost. Just so I tell you there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the Greek word idea. Searching, zealously, driven. you got to find it. you got to find it. It also says here that they inquired carefully. And to me it's very interesting. The trans- this translates a Greek word, exorano. And this is the only place that Greek word is used in the Bible too. Two, I mean, that's very unique to find in the same, same verse two words that God uses nowhere else but only here. And this particular word means to carry out exacting, careful study. They were not only driven in the sense of zeal and motivation, but they were careful. You know, it's like uh, they wanted to make sure every, every stone was turned. They wanted to make sure they wrote down, let's say the classic thing everyone in that was going through school, had a chemistry class, and you had a lab that was part of that. And during the lab, you better write down everything that was happening in the lab, because if you didn't write everything down there, (laughs) you weren't going to come to the end and purpose of that lab. And that's the idea, deep, intense, careful study. I was thinking of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where God commands us, and he says, Do your very best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who is rightly handling the word of truth, the scriptures. This is the principle, you see. He says, listen, these motivated prophets were driven and very careful to try to find the answer to these perplexing questions. 
Like, who will this Messiah turn out to be? <laughs> when is this Messiah coming? Uh, by the way, in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, listen to these words because uh, the scholars link this particular part of Proverbs to this passage in 1 Peter. Listen to this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek after it like silver and search for it as if it's hidden treasures, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see the picture? If you want to see searching and inquiring carefully, read Proverbs chapter 2. That, that was what was going on. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? I, I search and I inquire carefully. I search for this diligently like a hidden treasure. I study to show myself approved unto God. A workman needing not to be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. Is that true? Is that true? I also find this verse 11 is an interesting verse because it explains to us a little bit about how we got the scriptures anyway. The God-breathed word. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and therefore is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here we see the Spirit of God moved in the hearts of these prophets to give them that revelation. And they wrote it down. What person or time, verse 11, was the Spirit of Christ in them referring to and indicating? Later on in Second Peter, in the first chapter, in verses 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, like people sitting down and saying, I think I'll write prophecy. That's not what happened. Uh, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You follow it? So here we get that little picture of, oh, what's inspiration mean? That's what it means. It means man didn't come up with any of it. It only was written down as the Holy Spirit moved upon the people. The Spirit of Christ moved upon people. So here's the picture. We have the scriptures because the living word made flesh and dwelt among us. Spoke the eternal word into the prophets' hearts and moved them to create the written word. And as a result of that, we have a verbal, inspired, inerrant scripture. A little lesson on uh, how we got the scriptures, all right? <laughs> and, and it's not the main point here, but it certainly alludes to that, in case you were wondering. I find an, an irony behind this. and I mean, I would love to spend the next hour talking about inspiration, because I think uh, it's, it's such a misunderstood thing among believers, but I won't do that. But listen, notice the irony here. The prophets learned about grace, that grace that was to come. They learned about the grace that was to come from the very one who would make the grace possible. The Spirit of Christ speaking to them about it. And he was going to be the answer to the question. Who's going to be this Messiah? How is he going to do this? And the one who was going to do it told them about the grace in the first place that was now fostering that diligent inquiry. Scripture's filled with ironies sometimes, uh, uh, good ironies. You know, you look at it and say, well, Lord, 
not that that makes you smile, but you sort of look at it and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, there's, it's not funny exactly, but nonetheless interesting that God did it that way. Well, how did God answer them? The answer was this. The mystery of who and when wouldn't be cleared up for them. Then. It was going to be cleared up later on. It wouldn't be cleared up until the Messiah came. Then the pieces of the puzzle would suddenly be seen. Remember, he makes it this way. He says, listen, the things that have been announced to you were for the people in the future. I mean, you got announced to you what was for the people of your time. It isn't for you to know the answer to some of this question, but that you recognize there has to be, that's good. But I've got an answer. It's going to come. God's answer to the prophet's question about who and when is that you're just going to have to wait. I'm not going to give you any premature prophecy about that. We're not going to give you any premature revelation about it. It will come. The amazing prophecy of that coming of grace was received primarily for our benefit. And so if you want to know the New Covenant Gospel message, and you want to think about it as an amazing wonder, thinking about it this way then. What an amazing wonder. All the prophets said, this has got to be the most important single message of all time. We've we got to find the answer to the rest of this. We see the first parts of it. Where is it going? Is that how you see the gospel? The most amazing thing to understand in eternity? The gospel? But that's how they saw it. Uh, I was thinking of Matthew chapter 13 in this regard. In verses 16 and 17, listen to these words. Jesus is speaking, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many of the prophets and righteous people, and he's talking about all of the people before, longed to see what you see, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and didn't hear it. And those very people are the ones that First Peter's talking about. They longed to get the full answer. How are you going to work all of this out? We are in this privileged position as New Testament believers. With biblical hindsight, we can go back and see clearly what they could only dimly see. But even seeing it dimly was enough to drive them to find an answer. Isn't it amazing that people can be in a place where it's not dim anymore and they're still not driven? How's that work? You know what? How can somebody be complacent when you finally can see on something that others understood to be so important that it was only dimly seen, but they were driven to find answers to it. How does that work out? I don't, it is so ironic. Do you love God's Word? Are you appreciating the wonder that it provides for us? We, in the privileged position we are in, we know the answer to the who. Oh, the, the who was Jesus Christ. The word made flesh and dwelt among us of the line of David. We know when. He was born in a stable in Bethlehem. He lived, he died on the cross, he rose again, he ascended back to heaven, he's coming again. We have the answer to the whole picture. You say, well, there's things I still don't understand that I would like God to reveal. Well, yeah, but he's revealed what he really needed to reveal. You got what they couldn't get. Do you appreciate it? By the way, I want you to also notice something about evangelism here. Notice the crucial role it plays. He says, this message that the angels 
long to look into, has been announced through the prophets, and so forth. He says, it's been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. People need the good news preached to them. That's the only way they're going to hear it. The, only, the thing that will be what the, what the prophets were longing to find an answer to, what is this grace all about? How does one actually find forgiveness and eternal life? How can I have a permanent solution to my sin? That gospel has to be proclaimed. It has to be announced to people. You remember we were talking about being aliens in this world uh, and that God has purposely scattered us? And when we were talking about that, remember why did he scatter us? So we could be his ambassadors here. We're the ones who have the privilege of sharing what these prophets were motivated to try to find an answer and driven to find an answer to. We share it with people. And in evangelism, God uses our human voices to proclaim the wonder of this gospel. And then the Holy Spirit takes those voices, that sharing of his truth that we do, and convicts the people's hearts with the truth of it. It's all an amazing thing. And God says, that's what we're about. So, start to lose your awe, get a little complacent about salvation. Spend a little time thinking about the prophets and how it was still moving in them to find out what's been revealed to you, driving them. And if that's not enough, then think about the angels. These are things, it says in in the end of verse 12, into which the angels long to look. The very angels of God, this other created order, they wonder over the promised salvation too. They longed to see it unfold. This word long is a good translation. The Greek word means to have deep yearnings. You ever think about angels that way? Deeply yearning for something? They would be yearning for something that didn't directly affect them. It affects us. You see, Jesus, according to Hebrews, didn't come to save angels. He came to save us. And yet, they were deeply moved, longing inside, to see how grace worked out. Why were they longing so? Because they'd been following God's unfolding plan for sinners since the fall of man in the garden. They saw the mess that occurred because of our rebellion against God. They've been following it through. They knew human beings blew it in the garden, and they were now helpless and hopeless and without God in this world, as Ephesians 2 tells us. They know that. They know it better than we know it because they see the whole cosmic picture. They see it. And the question that was driving them is, What would God do about this impossible situation? We know what the holiness of God is all about. We know why sinners can't dwell in his presence. Uh, What's God going to do about this? And they were perplexed about it. How does one return to holiness and righteousness that which is no longer holy and righteous? How does that happen? If you've ever wondered, by the way, whether heaven's watching the salvation drama and what's going on among human beings, don't wonder any longer, because this tells us about that. That's what Luke chapter 15, I read to you early, said in verse 10. So I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over a sinner who repents. They, they're following the process. They see it all. And, and, and can, you, can you just picture the, the angels 
deeply yearning to see, God, what are you going to do about this? These people are created in your image. We weren't. They were. Humanity was created in your image. And they're lost. We know there's nothing they can do to restore righteousness and holiness to their life. Therefore, they're destined to be permanently cut off from you, helpless and hopeless. And you can't stop being righteous and holy and just. And How's this ever going to work out? They knew God would redeem the lost. But they, like the prophets, were a little unclear on the details and the timing. And for them... It took the incarnation. It took the cross. It took the resurrection to answer the questions. Remember there was all that rejoicing in heaven at the incarnation? Oh my gosh, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the angels celebrating it with, on the hillside with the, with the shepherds. They were getting an answer finally to what they saw to be an eternally impossible situation. Not only had the Messiah would come, but the Messiah would be the very Son of God. Word made flesh to dwell among us. They saw it. They knew what was happening at the cross. They knew the Father had not sent them to deliver Jesus from the cross. They understood why. Because God finally made it available to them. They could see their lung was addressed. I mean, here's the point. There weren't any angels, according as we see this, there weren't any angels who guessed that the answer that God would come up with was to send his only son to the world to be a man to die for our sin. They didn't guess that. That wasn't like, oh, well, I think that's what's going to happen. It was inconceivable to them that God would have that answer. It was an amazing answer that the prophets couldn't grasp either. I mean, I don't believe it ever occurred to any of them that this one who was promised to be born would turn out to be the one, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, as John 1 tells us. I don't think any of them could have guessed that. Could you? If you had not been told the Gospel, could you have guessed that the solution to the unsolvable would involve nothing less than the very Son of God having to come into this world, step down, be born as a man, live perfect life, suffer and die for you. I mean, who would have, who would have thought that? Who could have come up with that? Nobody could have. They couldn't have guessed it. Salvation of God, solving this great dilemma, cost the Son of God his life. If you ever want to know why he tells us in verse 9 that the proper goal for our faith is the salvation of our soul, that gets you a little closer to it. You had no answer to the salvation of your soul. I mean, you were helpless and hopeless. I was helpless and hopeless. But God had an answer. And I'm on the gospel side. I was able to be told, Jesus died for you on the cross. That's what led me to Christ, by the way. The message that there's nothing you can do about the sin that you know, that sense of guilt that separates you from God, there's nothing you can do about that. Turning over new leaves will never change that. You can't just get more religious and solve this problem. You're separated and hopeless. But take hope. God loved you anyway. And he sent his son to die for you so that his life, his death, 
his resurrection can be your solution. I looked at that and God convicted my heart and I said, Really? Really? Turn to it, because that was the only thing that made sense to me. 18 years old, it's like, I don't see any other answer. I'm already no, I know what guilt is. <laughs> I see no solution to it. This is a solution. Praise God. I'll freely admit what I already know to be true for myself. I'm a sinner and separated from God. I am going to choose to trust in that one, in his death on the cross. I'm going to rest in that. That's going to be my hope. It's going to be my future. Who could have guessed it? So, here's the application of all of this. We'll draw it to a close. Do you share the prophets and angels' excitement about the gospel? Do you share that? And the answer is, we have to admit, all of us, that at times we don't. <laughs> it, what has been the most amazing, eternally amazing thing can become dulled to us at times. And therefore, we're in good company. <laughs> That's the way it is. And so God says, listen, let's, uh, let's, let's kind of shake us, slap our face a little bit, say, wait a second, wait a second. Let's remember how the prophets saw all of this. Let's remember what the angels felt. And let's compare it to what you feel at the moment. And if it's not what you should be feeling, let's get it right, get it sorted out, and say, okay, Lord, I'm, I am going to rejoice in my salvation. I'm going to be thankful for what could have happened no other way than what you did. Is the message the prophets searched for and saw so important? Or the angels longed to look into important enough for you to rejoice in it in your life and to share it with others? <laughs> There's our application, brothers and sisters. There's our application.